This past summer, I had the opportunity to go and uh, attend a family reunion in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. It was just a wonderful time to get together with all of the uh, siblings I have and many of their children and my dad and my stepmother, and to be reminded that I am part of an amazing family, a group of people with all kinds of different sorts of gifts and a shared sense of passion to use those gifts to make a difference in the world. Having a family name can sometimes be one of the most clarifying, uh, influential parts of a human being's life experience. The right name can, as you probably know, be an automatic ticket to admission in certain kinds of circles. It can be a key to power or influence in some sort of way. Uh, having a particular family name can symbolize a whole raft of values and commitments that one will feel uh, compelled to live up to and to live into simply by virtue of being a person that comes uh, with that name. I think of the eight-year-old daughter of William Howard Taft III, who once remarked with her chest swelled out, my grandfather was president of the United States, my, my, uh, my great-grandfather was president of the United States, my grandfather was the senator of Ohio, my father is ambassador to Ireland, and I am a brownie. There's great power and can be indeed great pride in a family name. And that is one of the reasons why I want to introduce you today and in the weeks to come to someone from your family, someone to whom you can personally be very proud to be related. I'm going to reprise one of the very first sermon series I ever gave here at Christ Church. Uh, many of the folks that now uh, inhabit these corridors were never around for this uh, particular uh, conversation. I want to invite you to meet with me uh, the figure of Daniel. I don't mean the preacher, but rather the individual uh, from whom the preacher derived his own name. Uh, Daniel is a spiritual forebearer to each and every single one of us, and his life has much to teach us about what it really looks like to live with clarity and courage, with a lion heart, as it were, in the midst of an often uh, wayward and distracting uh, world. How many of you have ever seen a sandcastle obliterated by an ocean or a Great Lake wave? Anybody ever seen that happen? Well, if you've watched that uh, occur, then you will be able to understand something of what happened in Israel in September of 605 B.C. It was then that the armies of the great nation of Babylon swept southward through Syria into Palestine and obliterated completely the Jewish nation, adding the remnants of that nation to its collection of tributary states. The Bible describes the events in, in these terms. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord, this is the part I want you to pay attention to, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Now why in the world would God purposely deliver his chosen people into the hands of their enemies? Why would God do this? Well, to get an answer, you need to understand that for nearly 500 years leading up to this particular moment, 
The chosen people of God had been the dozen people of God in, in a real sense. At least they were asleep at the wheel in terms of the things that really mattered most to God. Uh, while maintaining a certain superficial piety, they had violated God's law in just about every other manner conceivable. They had ignored his instructions, for example, about allowing the land to be left fallow every seventh year and in their greed had just kept working and working the land and depleted the good earth that God had given them. A reminder, I suppose, that destroying the creation, the environment God gives us, is something that matters to him. He is deeply displeased when we do this. The Lord had also commanded that every 50 years, a jubilee was going to be observed. It would be a time when the debts of the poor were to be forgiven. The message, I suppose, there and in other passages of the prophetic teaching of the Old Testament is that God does not like despair. God does not want to see people under crushing debt year after year with no hope of ever getting out of it. But God's people had completely ignored the Jubilee tradition. They had discarded it, and the result was now a gigantic gulf between the poor and the, and the wealthy of Israel. God had very clearly commanded that the Israelites were to care for widows and for orphans, but Israel had given very uh, little more than just nominal attention to that tradition. Uh, he had told them that they were not to have other gods or graven images, but Israel had adopted other religious traditions and had given over to many forms of idolatry. And for nearly 500 years, God was patient with this. Uh, almost inconceivably patient with Israel. After all, I suppose, the Apostle Paul reminds us, love is patient and kind. But God's patience was punctuated with a, a continual calling to turn back to him. He sent prophets and minor calamities to his people in an effort to try and bring them back to integrity and identity with him, but even God does not turn his cheek forever. And for the northern kingdom of Israel, and Israel at this time is split into a northern and a southern kingdom, the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. For the northern kingdom, God's patience ran out in the year 722 B.C. And he allowed Assyria, a great nation to the north, you remember them from our series on Jonah, he allowed Assyria to sweep in and be the rod of his judgment, as the prophet said, utterly destroying the northern kingdom of Israel's capital, Samaria, and carrying its leading citizens off into slavery. It was like that Amazon Prime show that some people watch these days, Man in the High Castle, that imagines that the Nazis got the atom bomb first, and they destroyed Washington with it, and then they enslaved America. Only this alternative history actually happened. Israel was wiped off the face of the earth. Now, you would think this might have had a salutary effect upon the people down in the southern kingdom in the nation of, of Judah, as it was called. You would think this would have been a wake-up call for them, and for a moment it actually was. And, and urged on by the rediscovery of the book of Deuteronomy, the law of God, the, a picture of how God wanted his people to live, a very good king by the name of Josiah launches a national reform movement. 
And Israel does, or the nation of Judah does turn back towards God in some very, very important ways. But then Josiah is suddenly killed in battle. And the nation begins to drift away again without this strong leader guiding the helm. And prophets like Jeremiah are raised up by God to continue to warn the people of Judah that judgment is imminent unless repentance is immediate. But the majority of folks effectively say, oh, God would never let what happened to them happen to us. Oh, that could not happen here. We're his chosen people. Hey, we've even got his holy temple right here in our city. We're a city on a hill. We're a light to the nations. We put his name on our money. Nothing that awful could ever happen to us. But here's the first practical lesson I'd like to lift out of the Bible today. You cannot disobey God without ultimately losing. The consequences may not come today. They may not be clearly visible on the horizon of an immediate tomorrow. We may even enjoy for a period of time an illusory prosperity in worldly terms. We may benefit from the roots we once have even though we have cut ourselves from those roots and are now but a fading flower and don't see it. But eventually, those who disobey God, whether it's an individual we're talking about or a society or a nation, eventually that person or persons will wind up as losers. It's a law of the universe. It has happened to nation after nation after nation and so many individual lives over the course of history. Well, the just arm of that universal law stretched out and exacted judgment on the southern kingdom beginning in 605 B.C. And over the next 20 years, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon systematically stripped Judah of all of its best resources. Uh, He took its wealth and its sacred worship vessels and eventually in 586, even the stones of Jerusalem's magnificent temple. He took even the stones of the building away. Worst of all, he stole Judah's heart. He took Judah's brain power. In a succession of three deportations, Nebuchadnezzar surgically removed their top talent and added it to his own administration. And Daniel chapter 1, I hope you'll read it in its entirety, tells us exactly how he did it. And I want to summarize this for you. First of all, he had his vice president for human resources, a fellow by the name of Ashpenaz, select the physically fittest and the intellectually brightest of Judah's young leadership and puts them through a three-step recruitment program. Step one. Involved giving them all a full scholarship to uh, Chaldean University. And uh, the Chaldeans was another name for the Babylonians. Uh, It was Babylon's top college. And there in that very heady environment, they would be completely steeped in the Babylonian language and literature. Just like our people are constantly being steeped today in the language and the literature and the worldview of a, point, of a way of being and thinking that is alien to the call of the kingdom of God. 
Step two was to offer them a free meal ticket to the rich menu that was being served at the king's uh, training table. Even back then, Nebuchadnezzar knew that one of the best ways to a young person's heart, especially a young man, is through his stomach. And so he gave them this incredible meal plan. Uh, and then step three was to give these young people new names. Uh, for the vast majority of young Jews, this program proved enormously effective. I mean, just put yourself in the place of one of these young people. Uh, you are um, far away from your land. You are uh, a deportee. You're thinking, I'm going to spend the rest of my life probably pounding rocks into pebbles for the king's roadworks, and then somebody comes along to you as you're slaving over a hot sledgehammer and says to you, hey, whoa, you're way too talented to be doing this. <laughs> There's too much promise in your life. How would you like to join our executive training program instead? What are you going to say? How are you going to respond? Are you going to worry a whole lot that this education you're getting is going to perhaps replace your biblical worldview? Probably not. And if you'd been marched hundreds of miles in a slave train in chains like Daniel and his friends were all the way from Jerusalem to Babylon and somebody pointed to you while you stood in the bread and water line and said, oh, hold on a minute, that one there's got potential. Why don't you just get out of that line and come over here and get into this line? You should be on a diet of filet mignon and cabernet. You'd be much better off. If that kind of offer was given to you, would you quibble that much that the food had been previously offered to idols, used in pagan worship? Probably not. And if you, like Daniel and the other guys, had been separated from your home and your kinfolk and you'd been brought away to a land where you knew nary a soul and then somebody comes up to you and puts an arm around your shoulder and says, you know, we've been watching you and we really like your stuff. We like your style. We would like you to be part of our family now. It's just that, well, it's that... That Jewish name of yours is very hard to pronounce on our Babylonian tongue. And how about if we just give you a Babylonian nickname instead? If that's the price of belonging, are you going to get all that worked up just because your new name, which in Daniel's case was the name Belteshazzar, which means he whom the pagan god Bel favors. Are you going to get all worked up that that's your new name? Probably not. I know that this is true because I know the story of Daniel, and this time I don't just mean the ancient Daniel. I, I mean the guy standing in front of you right now because I have found myself immersed in so many of those kinds of contexts over the course of my life, as perhaps you have. I often feel like a great deal of my life has been lived in Babylon. I feel like I have often been presented with influences that, that pulled me to adapt myself in one way or another to the prevailing culture for the sake of the benefits that that culture can give me. I tell myself, oh, I can maintain a strong biblical worldview. Uh, I know I can. 
uh, while spending all of these hours just reading literature and absorbing information that implies that there are really no moral absolutes, there are no problems truly that better technology or education can't solve. I think sometimes that I can remain spiritually healthy while I'm munching constantly on this media-offered diet of, of junk food that has me consciously or unconsciously bowing down in different ways to the idols of, of power and celebrity and, and possessions and all of that stuff. I tell myself and other people that my identity is Christian while accepting with satisfaction names like megachurch pastor or Ivy Leaker, Leaguer or Oakbrook person, um, as if every other identity other than being a Jesus follower didn't compete with the first. I make these little compromises. I sometimes accept these big little lies, and maybe you do too, as if they had no cost, as if this was not going to make a difference in our ability to be who God calls us to be and to play the role in the world he wants us to play. Before there was a, a game show called Jeopardy, uh, Americans tuned in by the millions over the radio waves to a quiz show called 21, whose winner, repeatedly, who was the Ken Jennings or the James Holtzauer of his day, was a man by the name of Charles Van Doren, Jr., and in the Hollywood film that tells his story, we meet Van Doren as he's discovering something crucial about the nature of integrity and identity. Charlie is trying to explain to his father, an esteemed professor, how he became a rich national celebrity and lined the pockets of the network and their sponsors by participating in what was basically an answer-rigging scheme. It began very innocently says Charlie, they gave me the answers. Well, no, 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 they, at first they just asked me the questions that they knew I already had the answers to. I still didn't want them to actually give me the answers, so I just had them give me the questions, and then I'd go look up the answers as, as if that were any different. Well, well, we ran through those in a couple of weeks, says Charlie, and then I just didn't have the time to look up these answers anymore, and it just seemed so silly, and his father interrupts him. They gave you all that money to answer questions they knew you knew? Wow, that's inflation, Charles. And the son says, you're not being very helpful, Dad. And the father says, I'm sorry, Charlie, but I'm an old man, and this is all just a little difficult for me to comprehend. It's just television, Dad. It's just TV. You make it sound like you didn't have a choice, says the father. And the son says, what was I supposed to do? Disillusion the whole country? But you took the money. Yes, I know, I took the money. Is that what this was all about, Charlie? I don't know. It was a quiz show, Charlie. It was a quiz show. And at that point, the son just rolls his eyes in exasperation and he raises his voice. Look, Dad, 
It was my own name at stake, okay? My own name. And with that, the father looks at him with profound pain in his eyes and with righteous anger. And he says in tones that just shake the empty lecture hall in which they're having this conversation, what you seem to have forgot, son, is that your name is my name. It's my name. It is really easy to forget that our actions as followers of Jesus reflect upon someone much larger than ourselves, that we are part of a family, we're connected to a father whose good name is affected and even sullied by our behavior sometimes. Daniel is a significant figure for us to study because somehow he could not forget that. Even in the midst of Babylon, this teenager, and that's all he was, could not forget that he shared his heavenly father's name. You see, Daniel literally did. The name Daniel contains the word El at the end, an abbreviated form of Elohim, the Hebrew word for the name of God. He had the name of God in his literal name. And because the word El is so small, just a little piece at the end of Daniel's name, you could understand why Daniel might have taken it a little less seriously. After all, it would have been a very small concession, apparently, to eat food that had been offered to idols, just like it is a very small thing, I suppose, to, to uh, vary from the literal truth as we retell a story or tell a little lie or fudge on our taxes. It's only a small variance from love to speak ill of a neighbor or to look with lust upon somebody else's spouse. It's only a tiny sidestep from grace to hold a grudge against an obnoxious individual. It's only a minuscule shift from integrity to live by the ethics of the marketplace instead of the ethics of the kingdom. It's only a seemingly wee diversion to go from getting the questions ahead of time to getting the answers. And our life lies in these tiny variances. And like Charlie in the movie, we understandably I know it's true for me. We want to excuse ourselves these diversions. We want to say, look, Dad, it's just not that big deal. Can we talk about all the things I'm doing right? Can we focus on that? But here's a second important principle from the life of Daniel. That Hebrew kid knew that all obedience and victory in the big tasks of life begins with total obedience in the small tasks. Think about that. Think about the marathon runners out there today. How are they going to be able to cross 26.2 miles? Answer, months, maybe years ago, they crossed half a mile obediently and faithfully and got so 
practiced at aligning themselves to the basic practices of running that they're able now in the great moment of challenge to accomplish something amazing. Partial obedience to a perfectly holy God is disobedience. Think about this. Partial obedience to a perfectly holy God is still disobedience. God asks for total obedience because even a slight variation from integrity or loyalty or kindness has an immense multiplying effect over time and it reflects not just upon you and upon me, but upon our Father, upon the name, the identity, the self of our Father. That, I think, is why Daniel turned down the surf and turf when it was offered to him. And that's what happens in chapter 1. He says, no, thank you. I, I won't eat that. I'm going to go, I'm going to eat this instead. And you just see what difference that makes. He did it knowing that, that such an act uh, put in jeopardy his place at Babylon University, if not the place of his head, upon his own neck. But he chose total obedience to God. What gave him the courage to do that? How did he find the clarity of, of, of perspective to make that kind of a choice? And I, I suspect that it was because Daniel knew that as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar was, and he was, the, he was the lord of the greatest superpower of that age, as powerful as Neb was, and as prevalent as the values of Babylon were, and as persuasive as the Chaldean culture was, in the end, there was and is only one true judge of the success and worth of a life, and that is the Heavenly Father. In fact, Daniel's name itself was also a reminder of that truth. It literally means, God is my judge. God is the ultimate setter of the value of my life and my choices. The psalmist had put it this way in Psalm 75, for not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge, and he puts down one, and he exalts another. And that is a third principle from the life of Daniel that is helpful to ponder. Just as there is no way to disobey God and not wind up a loser, there is also no way that you can obey God and not, in the end, wind up a winner. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that in following God, there will be all roses and no thorns. As we're going to see as we follow Daniel's story in coming weeks, obeying God can lead you into some very tight and testy places, some very tough places. It was that way even for Jesus, for the one who, for the joy, Scripture says, set before him, endured even the cross. But let's remember that because of Christ's obedience, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me say that again. 
Jesus really proves this for us. There is no way to obey God and not in the end wind up a winner. So as we go out today, let me dare to ask you this simple question. Is there some area of your life, some area of my life, where we need to hear and to believe and to act on that promise? Maybe God is calling you or me to manage our time differently than we've been doing that. Maybe he's asking us to set aside so much of that Babylonian literature that we've been occupied with and immerse ourselves more fully in his holy word. Perhaps God is commanding you to give your marriage a second chance or to give another heartfelt try to patch up some broken relationship you have with someone in your family or your, your circle or your uh, Uh, workplace, uh, maybe even an enemy. Perhaps God is calling you to give more time to your family or to clean up your business dealings or to share your faith with someone who is near to you. I cannot say, I do not know, but what I do know is that no matter how risky obedience to God's calling looks, no matter how big the apparent sacrifice to do what God is calling you to do, if you will remember your name, if you will hold fast with integrity to the identity he gives you as a member of his family, if you resolve to be totally obedient, even in the little things, in the end, you will not lose. Please pray with me. Lord, open our eyes to to where we are today, to the conditions of our world. Help us to understand how different this truly is from the way you have called us in your word to conduct relationships, to value possessions, to uh, use our, our speech, to... Focus our eyes. Lord, in every way, Lord, help us to remember our name, to remember our identity, and to live from that center with integrity and obedience each day of this week to come. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Grant us your power. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.